The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to Go Green Radio, brought to you by Covanta Energy. Reduce, reuse, recycle. Rethink renewable energy and energy from waste. This program will help start you thinking about how to protect our world and its important resources. Now here's the host for Go Green Radio, Jill Buck. Welcome to Go Green Radio. So glad that you could all join us. Today our topic will come as no surprise to anybody who's been watching American politics, but we're going to dig in a little bit deeper into this issue of the influence that big energy, particularly big oil companies, have on American politics. Today we'll be joined by two journalists who've been covering this issue at a very different perspective. Our first guest is Zoe Carpenter. She's been following um, the influence of big oil in a senatorial race in Louisiana. And so she's got sort of a national perspective, a statewide perspective. And then later in the hour, we're going to be talking with a journalist who's been covering the influence that one oil company, Chevron, has had in a teeny tiny little town in California, Richmond, California. And we'll be talking about what's going on there. But first, uh, let's talk with Zoe. Zoe is a reporter for The Nation uh, in their Washington, D.C. bureau. And prior to joining The Nation, she was published in uh, several different uh, venues, and one of them was Rolling Stone, one of my faves. Um, she's appeared on MSNBC, CNN Newsroom, and CNN The Lead with Jake Tapper, and we're really happy to have you on. Welcome to Go Green Radio, Zoe. You know, for a long time, as long as I can remember in my political awareness, um, the conventional wisdom has been that Americans who are concerned about environmental protection or environmental degradation should vote for Democrats because the the thinking was Republicans just don't care. Um, and I don't know if that's true. I think there are a lot of Republicans out there who really do care about environmental protection, but that's sort of been the, the stereotype. However, um, as I'm reading your recent article in The Nation, and you make it pretty clear, it's not that cut and dry. And I'd like for you to talk to us about the relationship that Democratic Senator Mary Landrieu has with the energy companies in Louisiana. And and moreover, her influence on the regulation of these companies as the Senate chair of the Energy and Natural Resources Committee. Sure. So, you know, first of all, I think that broadly speaking, it's still true that there are many more elected Democrats who are willing to support environmentally friendly policies um, compared with the Republican Party, which uh, at this point protects business interests above all others. And and so um, I think it's still true that the Democratic Party is much greener than the Republican Party. However, um, one thing we're seeing in the midterm elections this year is that even though environmental groups like the League of Conservation Voters are some of the biggest political spenders. Um, many of the top Democratic candidates are actually not that great. Um, their records aren't that strong when it comes to the environment. And one of those people is Mary Landrieu, who is the senator from Louisiana. And she has staked her entire political survival on her support for oil and gas interests. Oil and gas interests 
are hugely important in Louisiana politics um, and at this point in the Louisiana economy. And she has a long track record of standing up for the industry in Congress, um, and that's what she's really running on. And this year, the Democrats made her the chair of the Energy and Natural Resources Committee, um, which means that she has power to convene hearings and have votes on uh, legislation, for example, voting um, on the Keystone Pipeline. And so she has done everything possible to um, to tell voters that she'll do whatever it takes to protect oil and gas. Um, and, and that could take a variety of forms from voting against climate change legislation um, to, you know, voting to strip the EPA of its ability to regulate uh, you know, clean water and things like that. So mm-hmm. um, she's she's really gone in a very conservative direction on energy. Talk to us about some of the environmental degradation in Louisiana that's attributed, or at least um, by the populace, that is attributed to the oil and energy industry. Um, what are average everyday Louisianans dealing with in terms of uh, the impact of the oil and gas industry? They're dealing with so many different things. It's really astounding. Um, there are some really dramatic examples like the BP oil spill. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, there's some evidence that uh, the, the Gulf fisheries still haven't recovered from that and that there may be long-lasting effects for people who depend on the coastal environment for their livelihood. Um, and then there's the sort of slower-growing disasters such as the disappearance of the coastline. Um, you know, Louisiana has is losing um, somewhere the equivalent of a football field an hour on the coast, and um, at least a third of that land loss, uh, the U.S. Geological Society um, estimates, is due to oil and gas activity. So what happened is oil and gas companies carved up the land um, with making canals that could get in and drill wells in the coastal land. And that's sort of like if you crack an ice cube with a hammer, it's going to um, melt a lot faster than if you have a big block of ice. And so the land can just um, be eroded more quickly because it's been carved up by these canals. And then there are all sorts of other things. Um, You know, the petrochemical industry, uh, the chemical part of that uh, includes chemical plants um, in Louisiana, refineries, and, uh, you know, you have high rates of asthma and some concerns about cancer rates in areas around those refineries and other chemical plants. And so there's really a whole host of environmental and health damages the state is dealing with. Your article referred to a lawsuit uh, that was brought by a state levy board that was created after Hurricane Katrina. And you mentioned, you know, this isn't a lawsuit that a lot of people outside of Louisiana know about, but it rocked the state in terms of, you know, state politics, and it was a really big deal. Talk to us about the upshot of this lawsuit um, that was brought against 97 oil and gas companies for, and I quote, a mercilessly efficient, continuously expanding system of ecological destruction. Talk to us yeah. about that. So the lawsuit was uh, really one of the first full frontal attacks on the industry, the oil and gas industry in Louisiana, that had broad popular support and actually had some bipartisan support in the legislature. And the lawsuit is about that carving up of the coastal lands with the canals, um, like I was talking about earlier. Um, and so basically the levy board, which is tasked with protecting areas around New Orleans from flooding, is saying, look, we can't do our job. We can't protect the city 
because we don't have coastal land to protect from storm surges. And that's one of the implications of this land loss is that when you have a storm like Katrina, there isn't as much of a buffer to stop the high water from getting into the more populated inland areas. Um, and so this lawsuit is asking for um, millions of dollars that would go towards coastal restoration. Uh, and it, you know, it really would be a pretty big financial penalty for a lot of these companies, especially some of the smaller companies. And they've fought back tooth and nail. And in, in a sign of how serious the lawsuit actually is, um, the legislature tried to pass, or Republicans in the legislature tried to pass 18 different laws designed to kill it. Um, and they did pass one that uh, is being litigated right now, so it's not clear what the fate of that lawsuit is. Um, and I should say Mary Landrieu had stayed neutral on the lawsuit for most of, uh, most of the year until the spring, um, and, and she seemed to condemn it in some remarks at the Baton Rouge Press Club saying that uh, lawsuits won't save the coast. And so that was a pretty telling moment um, if you're asking how far will she go, really, to support the oil and gas industry, to, to indicate that they shouldn't be held accountable for the coastal damage. That's a that's a pretty extreme position in favor of oil and gas interests. Mm-hmm. Now, she's in a pretty tight race for her Senate seat. It's far from safe at this point. Um, for Louisiana voters who resent the influence of big oil in the politics of their state, do they have a clear choice at the ballot box next week? They don't. They do not. None of the candidates for Senate in Louisiana um, are are doing any talking tough at all about oil and gas. Um, part of the reason for that is that oil and gas interests are so powerful politically in the state that for someone like Mary Lander, it is, you know, it, it is very unlikely that she would have a route to reelection without the support of the oil and gas industry, especially mm-hmm. because Louisiana has become a much more uh, red state in recent years. And mm-hmm. so um, I think it's fair to say that she would lose if she didn't have a lot of the support that she does have from, from oil and gas players. But the flip side of that is how do you change that? If you never have a candidate who's going to take on those interests, you're never, their political power is only going to increase every, every single election. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's difficult to see how you break that cycle. Well, and your article mentioned that the oil and gas industry is making a calculation about whether they'll benefit more from Landrieu's seniority or a Republican-controlled Senate. So help the average American here understand the implications of this line of reasoning on our everyday lives. I mean, how is this going to impact American politics? Well, either way, whether the Republicans in the Senate or whether Mary Landrieu keeps her chairmanship of the the committee – we're not going to have a very environmentally friendly person heading up that committee. Um, now, the pressure will be somewhat off Landrew once the election's over. If she keeps she keeps her seat and keeps the chairmanship, she doesn't have quite the same political pressure to um, pass or to promote laws that are so overtly supportive of polluters. Um, however, you know, if she wants to get reelected again, she's still going to be trying to burnish her credentials. Um, but the flip side is if Republicans win the Senate, you'll have many, many more powerful people, um, in various committee positions, uh, who are supportive of oil and gas interests. And so for the industry, um, you know, they have to decide, do they want, do, do they, do they really think that Democrats are going to keep the Senate? And if that's the case, they, they want Mary Landrieu to be beholden to them. And that's why they want to keep, you know, supporting her. Um, however, I think it's, it's very clear that, uh, their best case scenario would be a Republican controlled Senate. 
Mm-hmm. Now, I want to talk about some of the things that are going on in Louisiana politics, some of the grassroots things that are happening that may or may not have an impact on the influence that oil and en- big en- energy companies have on the state. Talk to us about what happened in Bayou Corn and how petrochemical corporations were involved. Yeah. So Bayou Corn um, was a really crazy disaster. Um a giant sinkhole opened up in this small community in coastal Louisiana. Um, and the sinkhole was because a massive salt cavern, um, one of many that have been hollowed out by petrochemical corporations uh, in Louisiana, collapsed. Um, so these big salt caverns are used for a variety of things. Some of them are used for um, storing oil, like as reservoirs. Um, in this case, this particular cavern in Bayou Corn. Uh, I believe was being used to create uh, and, and to hold saline solution um, or a salt solution um, that was used for a variety of chemical processes. And when you haul out the land, sometimes it collapses. Um, and so that's what happened there. And, and uh, only a handful of the original 350 residents remain. And there was really a, an outcry from some of the residents who felt like the state wasn't doing anything to hold the company accountable um, wasn't doing anything to change the regulations of the salt caverns so that it wouldn't happen to other communities. Uh, and I think it really awakened some people who tended to be conservative and tended to believe that oil and gas interests were very good for the state, um, that in fact the state is not protecting the people uh, because they're protecting the industry so heavily. Mm-hmm. And and what were some of the uh, – when did this happen and, and what were some of the the – you know, legislative upshots. Well, bio, it's still happening. Biocorn, the sinkhole, is still expanding. Um, oh. So this has been, you know, more than a year of this happening now. Um, and there has been some movement to, uh, to to regulate the the salt caverns uh, mm-hmm. more heavily. Uh, but that's just one of many issues, and it's, you know, it's not clear that uh, even if you have stronger laws, then the question is, will they actually be enforced? Um, and right. the Louisiana Department of Natural Resources is a widely recognized um, subsidiary of the industry. So, uh, you know, the, there might be a little more oversight now, but it certainly is not going to have a, that particular issue uh, right. is not going to have a huge issue. But the Green Army, which we'll talk about later, uh, yep. you know, has a bigger influence. Well, and I want to go right to that after we take this quick commercial break. So don't go away, folks. We've got much more with Zoe Carpenter right after this commercial break. News. Opinion. Your voice counts. Call toll-free 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. VoiceAmerica.com. How do you achieve the utmost success in your life, career, faith, relationships, and more? It's all here in the business of living with host Scott Ventrella. Scott has experience as an executive coach, sought-after speaker, and lecturer. He and his guests will offer practical solutions and strategies to help you move to the next level of success, no matter where you are in your life and career. The Business of Living airs live every Saturday at 11 a.m. Eastern Time, 8 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. 
Take a wild guess. How much garbage generated in the United States today is converted into energy? Is it 26%, 43%, or 14%? Working here and around the world to produce a reliable supply of clean, green energy, Covanta Energy works with communities to turn household trash into energy. Oh, yeah, that question I asked earlier? Today, only 14% of U.S. garbage is converted to energy. Just 14%. Covanta alone processes half of that municipal solid waste into renewable energy for a cleaner world. For more information about Covanta Energy, visit us today at www.covantaenergy.com. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. You're listening to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Jill would love to hear your comments or questions on today's show, so call us toll-free at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Write to us, too. Save some trees and send us an email to gogreenradio at gmail.com. That's gogreenradio at gmail.com. Now back to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Welcome back to Go Green Radio. In case you're just joining us, let me catch you up. Today we're talking about a subject that we've talked about before, but just from a slightly different perspective. We're talking about the influence of big energy and big oil companies in American politics. Specifically, during this segment, we're talking with Zoe Carpenter, who's a journalist for The Nation, and she's been covering um, Mary Landrieu's Senate race in Louisiana and looking at the influence that the energy companies have had on not just her race, but Louisiana politics in general, a state where there's quite a bit of poverty, quite a bit of environmental degradation as a result of the petrochemical you know, operations down there. And it's really interesting to see exactly how uh, the oil companies have been able to influence the, the race there. A little bit later in the segment, um, we're going to be talking to Harriet Rowan, who is a, a journalist in in California, we'll be talking about um, oil influence in a very small city council race in California. You know, there's millions of dollars involved, so that's going to be very interesting. So you'll want to hang on for that. Um, Zoe, you know, in this article that you recently published for The Nation magazine, um, you referenced an organization called the Green Army. And I'd like for you to talk about how this organization came about and how maybe it differs from some of the uh, San Francisco-style environmental groups that we have talked a little bit more about on Go Green Radio. How is this a different movement? So the Green Army started... uh, from events like the sinkhole and Bayou Corn, where citizens were trying to figure out how to get the state to pay attention to uh, the environmental damage that was wrecking their communities. And um, they didn't really have a strong sense of organization. And so the Green Army formed around um, these communities that needed to advocate for themselves and needed to advocate for more environmental protections. Um, and the Green Army is led by a man named Russell Honoré, who's a retired general um, who's widely credited with um, turning around the disastrous federal response to Hurricane Katrina. Um, and he's some, something of a, a Louisiana hero because of that. And he's not partisan. Um, he does not promote candidates. He doesn't uh, really get involved at all in electoral politics. And so something that's really unique about the Green, Green Army is it's brought together um, non-traditional political allies. So I spoke with one man who refers to himself as a Tea Party Republican and plans to vote for Rob Manis, who's the Tea Party candidate in the Louisiana Senate race. Um, 
But he talked very frankly and very critically about how much power the petrochemical industry has in the state. Um, and, you know, he really challenged the idea that the cost of doing business in Louisiana is environmental damage, and it's just something you have to live with in order to have a strong economy. Um, and so I think, I think there is a lot more of a sense of injustice among ordinary and even conservative Louisianans about how the petrochemical industry has been able to get away with impunity, um, Know, get away with the damage um, with impunity. And that's not something that a lot of the political leaders are really um, taking advantage of. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, but I think that there really is a sense of discontent, um, and that which may be ripe for some sort of larger uh, political organization. And that's what the Green Army is trying to do, is to, to bring those local concerns to um, the ears of lawmakers. Uh, one of the other campaigns they're working on is an anti-fracking campaign in, in St. Tammany Parish, which is a pretty wealthy conservative district. Um, and they're up in arms about plans to uh, lease 60,000 acres in that parish for fracking. Mm-hmm. And part of that is is the sort of not-in-my-backyard um, backlash to uh, natural resources development. But I think it is also really significant that um, the industry is being challenged in that conservative district. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. You know, I was out on the Green Army's Twitter feed um, yesterday, and they tweeted earlier this week, polluters are hijacking our democracy. What do they mean by that? And what, what do they hope to accomplish by that battle cry? There are so many ways in which uh, democracy has been hijacked by polluters, not just in Louisiana, but all over the country. In Louisiana, some of the forms that it takes um, are even in the education system. So oil and gas interests fund a lot of departments at state universities, um, and those departments put out reports about the environment and about how important the industry is for the Louisiana economy. So they're helping to shape the political discourse about the oil and gas industry via the academy. So that's one example. Another example is developing close relationships with the Department of Natural Resources. You know, you have the revolving door where people who work for industry then work for regulatory agencies and so have close relationships with their former employers in industry. Um, And then, of course, you have money in politics. As long as politicians, um, you know, need to suck up to special interests to get reelected, you know, it may not be direct quid pro quo, but of course, if they're looking for endorsements and campaign cash, um, they're going to need to pass some policies that those donors support. And so you mm-hmm. have this sort of total takeover of the political system um, from every level by by the people with the most money, and, and that's the oil and gas industry in Louisiana. Mm-hmm. Well, and and as we'll be talking about later in the show, it's not just in Louisiana. Um, you know, it's it's in other parts of the country as well, and it's really difficult um, to mount a campaign against that amount of campaign finance. It is the mother's milk of of politics. Um, yep. I'm wondering if you think that what's happening in Louisiana with the Green Army and places like Appalachia, where everyday people are fighting against big coal and mountaintop removal and things like that, do you see that these citizen groups, these grassroots organizers are apt to change the role that big energy companies play in American politics? Or, you know, maybe cynically, are they just too rich and powerful for grassroots organizations to compete with? You know, I think that they are significant. I think those local campaigns are very significant. Whether they are quick moving enough to 
blunt the most disastrous effects of climate change, for example, that's why I'm a little bit more pessimistic. You know, the the time scale that we need to have change on is very short um, in terms of climate change. And I think that local campaigns, they're very significant locally, but having them trickle up into the, the broader political system, the national political system, um, that's, that's the real question is how do you scale up? And I think the reason the local initiatives are so important is because you can bring together a more diverse coalition, a bipartisan coalition, um, because people who rely on the land for their livelihood, um, fishermen in Louisiana, um, people who like to hunt recreationally, who see their land disappearing because of the erosion that's been caused in part by oil and gas, they have this sort of um, personal stake. And I think it's, I think when you can motivate people because of their personal stake rather than their partisan affiliation, that's a much more powerful message. Um, on the national level, you still have environmental politics being very, very split along partisan lines. And, and so I think that, um, it's, I think at this point it's difficult to speak to Republicans, uh, Repu- Republican voters nationally, um, and motivate them around the environment. I think it's much more effective to go in in a much more specific local way. Mm-hmm. Well, and and honestly, some of the issues that are motivating local uh, nonpartisan groups like the Green Army are the exact same issues that motivated Republicans decades ago to actually lead on things like creating the EPA, <laughs> signing the Clean Water Act, signing the Clean Air Act, um, you know, and, and even when – then Governor Reagan was in office in California years and years ago. He created the California Environmental Quality Act. Um, it didn't used to be as partisan as it is now to protect the environment. It used to be, you know, a, a real American, all hands on deck concern. And I'm hoping that that will will happen again. You know, yeah. one of the go ahead if you wanted to add a little more. Sure. There. Well, I just, I just think that's a really good point. I think it's really astounding the transformation in the Republican Party when it comes to the environment. Um, and, and I think that that's something that doesn't get enough recognition, the fact that this is a pretty recent development. And I think it has a lot to do with money and politics. There's always been money in politics, but it's certainly gotten a lot worse since Citizens United and the McCutcheon Supreme Court decision. Um, and, you know, we really see the power of corporations who have the most to lose from environmental legislation, specifically climate change legislation, um, they've become so much more dominant in the political sphere that I think that is a big part of the explanation for this uh, transformation in the Republican Party. Agreed. I I think there's no question. You know, one of the things that I can't help but see when I look at the Louisiana situation is I see how profitable the oil and gas industry there is. And then you juxtapose that to the fact that Louisiana among American states is very poor. I mean, there's a great deal of abject poverty within the state and you have, um, you know, this, all these natural resources within the state and yet the wealth that's associated with refining and selling that natural resource doesn't seem to trickle down to the everyday, uh, Louisiana. And, uh, um, you know, I'm wondering how how you view that and, and how everyday Louisianans view that. Is that right? Is that fair? Are they, you know, is the state and the residents therein really benefiting enough from the wealth of their natural resources? Well, my perspective is that it's a real scandal. Um, you know, corporations get 
$1.8 billion almost a year in tax breaks and subsidies and other special incentives from the state of Louisiana. And in return, as you said, Louisiana has some of the worst poverty, some of the worst schools, and some of the worst health statistics. Um, and, you know, there, I think that the, the perception among Louisianans is somewhat split. Um, I think there are certainly people, many people in Louisiana, who are concerned that the state is giving so much special treatment to corporations, which includes oil and gas companies, um, and is not investing in healthcare, is not investing in education, um, is not investing in long-term sustainability. Uh, and that is certainly a concern for many people. Um, however, you know, the I think people have been given a lot of misinformation about how important the oil and gas industry is. And there's a perception among, among many people that the state would just collapse if the industry isn't given everything that it wants. And I think it's, it's undeniable that the industry has a big role in the economy. You know, they do support over 250,000 jobs, and many of those jobs are very well-paying, especially for people who don't have higher education. Um, and so there is a real need to figure out what's the alternative plan. If you're not going to rely on oil and gas, how do you get those kinds of high-paying jobs? Um, but I think this idea that it's inevitable, that there's nothing else to be done, that's really defeatist and very misleading. Mm-hmm. Final question for you, Zoe. Do you think, based on what you're seeing in Louisiana, that um, that perhaps environmental justice has become the new environmental protection. I mean, we, we saw in the 20th century, you know, a very save the spotted owls kind of environmental movement. Do you feel like it's, it's morphing into more of a save our kids health and future kind of thing and the environmental justice movement will, um, supplant or, or to overtake the traditional hippie type of movement in environmental protection? I certainly think that that perspective uh, and that angle on environmentalism is gaining strength, and I think it's really powerful. We have more and more of the population living in cities, more and more children who don't have a direct connection with the natural world, who have never seen an owl, um, have never heard what an owl sounds like. And and, um, I think if you're – people are self-interested, and I think there there are some people who are really motivated by passion for the natural world and love of the natural natural world, regardless of its relationship to humans. But many other people just don't care that much unless it affects them. And so I think messaging around environmental justice says, hey, look, we humans, even if we live in a concrete jungle, we are still deeply affected by the environment, whether that environment is an environment of human-made structures or whether it's an environment of natural, of the natural world. Um, and so I think that that's a really powerful message. Um, it is, it, I mean, it can be hard to connect because, again, these are sort of slow-growing disasters, uh, unlike something like Hurricane Sandy or Hurricane Katrina, where you really have this powerful event. A lot of environmental damage, um, especially in terms of health, creeps up slowly, and it can be hard to actually make direct causal links. You can have correlation, but causation is another question. And and so there's a how do you bring this to people's attention? How do you really make that relationship in their mind between the polluters and the political support for polluters and their health and their economic security? Mm-hmm. I think it has the 
the uh, potential to involve a lot more people than the spotted owl crowd. Love the spotted owl crowd, but I think, you know, when we bring together people who are concerned about their children's health and future and, and their grandchildren's health and future, you have the opportunity to to involve a lot more people. And I'm, I'm seeing a little bit more of that as I cover environmental stories and local efforts to do that. Zoe, I want to thank you so much for being on Go Green Radio. It was great having you. You're welcome anytime, anytime you want to come back and talk with us. We're going to take a quick commercial break, but when we return, we'll be joined by Harriet Rowan, who's been covering the impact that Chevron's political contributions have been having in a tiny little town in California. So don't go away, folks. There's more Go Green Radio right after this. News. Opinion. Your voice counts. Call toll-free 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. VoiceAmerica.com. Take a wild guess. How much garbage generated in the United States today is converted into energy? Is it 26%? 43%? Or 14%? Working here and around the world to produce a reliable supply of clean, green energy, Covanta Energy works with communities to turn household trash into energy. Oh yeah, that question I asked earlier? Today, only 14% of U.S. garbage is converted to energy. Just 14%. Covanta alone processes half of that municipal solid waste into renewable energy for a cleaner world. For more information about Covanta Energy, visit us today at www.covantaenergy.com. All round the outermost rim of the shield, he set the mighty stream of the river Oceanus, creating Achilles' shield in Homer's The Iliad, Book 18. Rachel Carson, in The Sea Around Us, said, All at last, return to the sea, to Oceanus, the ocean river, like the ever-flowing stream of time, the beginning and the end. Moyer's Environmental Dialogues with Dr. Rob Moyer offers lively dialogue and revealing narrative inquiry into how individuals are overcoming obstacles and creating a greener and blue planet Earth. Tune in Thursdays at 3 p.m. Eastern, 12 noon Pacific on the Voice America Variety Channel. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one Internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com You're listening to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Jill would love to hear your comments or questions on today's show, so call us toll-free at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Write to us, too. Save some trees and send us an email to gogreenradio at gmail.com. That's gogreenradio at gmail.com. Now back to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Welcome back to Go Green Radio. So glad that you could all be with us. Our guest this segment is Harriet Rowan. She's a first-year student at the University of California Berkeley Graduate School of Journalism. She's a reporter who is covering politics in Richmond, California, for uh, an online news site called Richmond Confidential. And I actually found uh, some of her articles in my local newspaper. So um, she's being picked up in print media as well. Um, Harriet, welcome to Go Green Radio. I'm so glad that you could join us today. Thanks for having me. Happy Halloween. 
Happy Halloween to you, too. Now, you've been covering Chevron's political donations in the town of Richmond, California. And for the sake of our listeners who are all over the country, tell us why Chevron is investing so much money in Richmond. What impact could local elected officials have on Chevron in this relatively small town? Yeah, so Richmond is a town of about 100,000 just north of Berkeley and El Cerrito in the, in the Bay Area. It's right on, uh, right on the Bay, so it has some ports and other things, and the huge Chevron refineries, it's there. Um, and the Chevron refinery um, is, you know, a huge generator of income for the Richmond refinery is a huge generator of income for Chevron. So for a long time, they... Um, you know, for probably 50-plus years, they've had a, a good amount of control over um, what goes on in, in Richmond. And um, they had ties to city council members for a long time, and they pretty much um, weren't challenged um, at all by the local government. Um, but a few years ago, um, the there was a kind of a group of progressives in Richmond that took over the city council, and they have been, you know, challenging Chevron in ways that they haven't been challenged before by the Richmond, by local Richmond politicians. So um, they are, it appears, trying to kind of buy back their influence in Richmond. Mm-hmm. Can you give us a few specifics about how um, a local city council could impact operations that big? I mean, I realize, you know, that it sits within the, the city limits of Richmond, but, you know, a lot of people might think, well, that's the state's purview or maybe even an, they're under national regulations. What harm could a local city council actually do to a refinery operation like that? Right. That's a great question. So there's a few things. Um, they determine to a certain extent how much Chevron is paying in taxes to the city of Richmond, um, which they have increased in recent years since this um, kind of progressive majority took over the city council, um, which obviously um, you know means more money that Chevron has to spend, um, which I'm sure they don't like. Um, mm-hmm. And then there's also they can regulate emissions, um, uh, I think that the 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 Chevron refinery in Richmond is the biggest greenhouse gas um, emitter in the in the state of California, um, and the Richmond City Council has a certain level of control over uh, emission standards for the refinery. Mm-hmm. And then, thirdly, and what most people are pointing to is the reason that Chevron is spending such a huge chunk of money in Richmond um, at this point about $100 plus per likely voter, um, is because in 2013, the city council um, and the mayor of Richmond decided to sue Chevron for the first time ever in the city's history um, for 50 years of environmental damage um, caused by fires that happen every few years and um, the emissions from the uh, refinery. Mm -hmm. So this... What came as a result of a fire that happened on August 6, 2012, um, that was many people say was caused by kind of a lack of upkeep of the facilities at the refinery, um, and there was a hole in one of the pipes, I think. And mm-hmm. um, so the the they're in the process of the lawsuit. The city of Richmond um, got a kind of high power law firm uh, to represent them, and they do expect to. Um, 
get some kind of settlement in the end. And when it comes down to it, the this, this city council and the mayor are the ones who direct the lawyers in the negotiations. So if Chevron has friendly candidates in a majority of the city council, they will get a better deal on this settlement, essentially. I see. Well, that makes sense. Um, how much have they actually invested? So as of new numbers are coming out today, um, I don't know if they will have put in more money, but so far Chevron has given $2.9-something million to um, a series of campaign committees that are spending money in the election. Um, they're in just the local Richmond city election. Um, so, so far, about $2 million of that has been spent, that's been reported, um, but many people think that they might spend more than $3 million before, you know, before Tuesday. <laughs> that's a lot of money in a local race. You know, a, a lot of people, I'm sure, who are listening to us in other parts of the country think, well, maybe that's just the cost of California politics. You know, California real estate's expensive. Everything's expensive in California. So if you're running for mayor in a small town in California, maybe $3 million is, you know, a pretty normal amount to be spending. Um, but it's not, is it? I mean, give us some idea of, of yeah. where this falls in the scheme of what's normal and what is not. It, I think people are shocked by the amount of money. Um, and you can really feel it's, it's visceral when you go to Richmond. You walk around and there's billboards everywhere, on every main street, on the sides of buildings. There's, you know, a lot of people have signs in their yards, but then there's also a lot of signs paid for by independent expenditure groups that are, oddly enough, mostly placed on the fences around abandoned properties, which seems mm -hmm. kind of odd. <laughs> um, mm -hmm. And you walk around and you people are getting many mailers in their mail every single day um, from moving forward. And then, you know, when you think about this, in addition to the statewide and countywide races that are happening, it's just a massive amount of money being spent on communicating to the voters in Richmond. Um, and like I said, I think a good way to think about this is kind of how much is being spent per person. Mm -hmm. um, and in so far, just Chevron is spending, depending on how many people come out to vote, approximately $100 per person. And it could, could, be, it could very well be more than that at the end. Um, and for a per, per person that is going to vote in the election. And that is, I think, really puts it in perspective, the idea that a, a, a giant corporation like Chevron is spending $100 for every single vote that is cast in an election is just it's That's kind of hard to wrap your mind around. <laughs> yeah, that I mean, that is breathtaking influence. Um, and, and what are they spending the money on? I mean, is it sunshine and roses? Like, here's why we love the candidates we love, or is it getting nasty? Yeah, so it's a combination, for sure. There are, um, so sh uh, through their campaign committees moving forward, and they've actually just funded a, a new campaign committee that I'll talk about in, in a few minutes, but um, mm -hmm. they are supporting... Four candidates mm -hmm. and opposing three candidates. So the money's split between them. They've spent, as of the most recent numbers, the most money they spent on any of the candidates is um, about $473,000 supporting Nat Bates, who is a current council member who is running for mayor. 
then the next most they spent is $351,000 attacking the current mayor, Gail McLaughlin, who has termed out and is running for a seat on the city council. Um, so they've spent a little more than half supporting the candidates that they're supporting, but it's pretty close. And they've spent, you know, more than a quarter million dollars attacking the other two candidates that are running on the slate with Gail McLaughlin as well, Eduardo Martinez and Javanka Beckles. Give us some idea of what's involved in a negative ad. What, what kinds of things are happening there? Yeah, so they, um, one thing, so they have big billboards that they're running um, against, uh, mostly against Gail McLaughlin, the mayor. Um, and the billboards kind of focus on this, uh, a few trips that she's taken in the eight years that she's been mayor um, and criticize her for kind of, aban- they say that she abandoned Richmond when Richmond needed her. Um, so, you know, it's this kind of dramatic sign and it has some geese flying and they're carrying a banner that says like, Gail McLaughlin, like, why did you abandon Richmond, essentially? <laughs> um, and And then they're sending out these glossy, kind of full-size mailers that come into people's houses, like this one I'm looking at right now. I've been collecting them. And this one that I'm looking at right now on the front has a person holding binoculars, and it says, look up in the sky. It's a bird. It's a plane. And then when you open it, it says, it's Mayor Gail McLaughlin flying away from Richmond's problems again. So, And she's responded to these accusations. She traveled a total of, I think, 20, 22 days, I think it was. Um, in the time that she's been mayor over the course of eight years. And, um, you know, she's pretty adamant that she doesn't feel like she's been abandoning Richmond. She traveled to Cuba on a, for a sister city project um, that they've criticized her for, although it was city business and there was other council members that went with her. Um, it's just kind of a taking this one little issue, they, they find the one thing that they think, I'm sure they've done polling too, that shows that people, you know, respond to this issue and then they just Mm -hmm. blow it up right well we're going to take a quick commercial break but when we come back we're going to have you play for us a little uh audio clip that's embedded in the mailer (laughs) i'm interested in that and then we'll talk some more about how chevron's uh, political donations are structured and, and what's going on there so don't go away folks there's more go green radio right after this Talk, talk, talk. That's all we do is talk. If you'd like to talk, call us toll-free right now at 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. That's it. That's it. VoiceAmerica.com. Listen for Matters of Design with celebrity designer Dimitri Christian Skirakis as he explores the dynamics of interior decorating. Imagine your personal style and ideas being shaped by our guest experts as they highlight a mixture of home furnishings, lighting, textiles, and fashion from around the world. If you've ever had difficulty trying to plan how to do it yourself, why not collaborate with a designer and wind up with results like you've never dreamed of? Matters of Design can be heard live every Thursday at 2 p.m. Pacific, 5 p.m. Eastern on Voice America Variety. Take a wild guess. How much garbage generated in the United States today is converted into energy? Is it 26%, 43%, or 14%? 
Working here and around the world to produce a reliable supply of clean, green energy, Covanta Energy works with communities to turn household trash into energy. Oh yeah, that question I asked earlier? Today, only 14% of U.S. garbage is converted to energy. Just 14%. Covanta alone processes half of that municipal solid waste into renewable energy for a cleaner world. For more information about Covanta Energy, visit us today at www.covantaenergy.com. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. You're listening to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Jill would love to hear your comments or questions on today's show, so call us toll-free at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Write to us, too. Save some trees and send us an email to gogreenradio at gmail.com. That's gogreenradio at gmail.com. Now back to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Welcome back to Go Green Radio. In case you're just joining us, let me catch you up really quickly. We're talking with Harriet Rowan, um, who writes for the Richmond Confidential. She's been covering the impact of Chevron's donations, um, political donations in the Richmond, California City Council mayor's race, about $3 million worth. And just before the break, we were talking about some of the negative ads that have been going out. And um, Harriet has a mailer that is kind of like a... You know, when you open it up, it's like a birthday card that has an audio piece in it. And Harriet, why don't you play that for us real quick? Put yeah, that up to sure. your. So, just a little bit, um, just about the mailer first. It's um, this actually isn't one of the moving forward mailers, but it just is a sign of how much money people are spending. This is from Charles Ramsey, who is supported by Moving Forward. And mm-hmm. on the front, it's a picture of him. It says, "Please listen to why I'm running for city council. It will take less than a minute." Hi. I'm Charles Ramsey, and I'm running for city council because I love Richmond. So you get, so you open it, and it just talks to you. I've showed it to a few of my friends, and everyone was kind of like surprised. That is <laughs> um, expensive, and it's just. I think it's just a, a fascinating example. One, it's something I've never seen before, mm-hmm. um, and two, I think it just goes to show. I mean. I wouldn't be surprised if that mailing, if he sent it to every house in Richmond, cost more than what the city council members make as a yearly salary. That is incredible. I, I've never seen anything like that, and I'm a political junkie. Um, yeah, exactly. That, Me too. I've never seen anything like it. That is pretty crazy. I'd like for you to explain to us how Chevron's um, coalitions are structured, because I suspect that many of our listeners are still unsure about how the Supreme Court's decision on campaign finance actually manifests itself in a local election like this one. So talk to us about how these contributions are structured. Absolutely. So what happens, um, and this actually took me quite a while to figure out, and it was one of the things that um, I was the first person to report. Um, So Chevron has, if Chevron wanted to give money directly to candidates, there's a limit of how much money they can give. But if they want to, you know, they want a certain candidate to get elected, they can create an independent expenditure group, a campaign committee, which they did called Moving Forward, and they can give that committee unlimited amounts of money, and that committee can spend unlimited amounts of money in the election as long as they are not coordinating with the candidates. Um, and there might be some other regulations about what they are and aren't allowed to do. But um, so um, lawyers that work for Chevron and a few uh, PR folks that work for Chevron um, are the people who you know kind of sign the papers 
for this organization called Moving Forward, a coalition, and the name goes on. It's quite long. And at the very end, it says major funding by Chevron. Mm-hmm. Um, that coalition has received approximately $3 million from Chevron this year. That coalition, in turn, gives money to two other coalitions that have very similar names. Um, one is Moving Forward, Opposing Gail McLaughlin, Eduardo Martinez, and Javanka Beckles. And then it says, With Major Funding by Moving Forward, a coalition. And then at the very end, it says, Major Funding by Chevron. Um, and then there's another committee. that So that committee spends money against the three candidates that they're opposing. And then they have a separate committee that's spending money for the, uh, for the four candidates that they're supporting. I'm not exactly sure why they would create this system versus just having one committee that spends money. Um, and I haven't really found a good answer for that other mm-hmm. than it's a good way to kind of obfuscate where the money's coming from because the committees that are spending the money aren't getting money directly from Chevron. Although it still says that money is coming from Chevron in their title. So it's a, it's a, it's a mystery so far to me. Um, so these committees are political action committees because they spend a certain amount of money on political communications in an election um, for and against specific candidates. Um, But they are just, you know, they just go file a paper with the Secretary of State and then file certain forms so they have to announce when they're spending, I think it's more than $1,000, they have to report within 24 hours and then they have to report every few weeks, um, and increasingly as the election gets closer, there's actually a reporting period that um, ends today, so we'll see if there's new numbers in the election mm-hmm. today. Well, I noticed in your articles that you talk about how Chevron's Moving Forward Coalition includes comparatively minuscule donations from other organizations like labor unions, um, police, and firefighters. Mm-hmm. And I'm, I'm wondering if you have any more information about how, how those labor unions decided to, or why those labor unions decided to join in with Chevron, um, what common cause they share, uh, you know, what's, what's the rationale behind, you know, the police and firefighters joining in with Chevron? Yeah, um, that's a really good question. It's not something that I've totally wrapped my head around, um, although I know that the police union and the firefighters union have had a long, a very long relationship with Chevron, a long, friendly relationship with Chevron, um, and that they've, you know, been partners in the past. And to a certain extent, I mean, so as of the last um, reporting period that I was, that has kind of complete data, uh Moving forward, had received, like I said, like $2.9 million from Chevron and $5,000 each from the Police Officers Association and the Firefighters Union. Mm-hmm. That, in turn, um, allows them to say, you know, technically, uh, which is technically correct, that moving forward is a coalition of labor unions small businesses, public safety, and firefighters associations. Mm-hmm. Um, I did make a kind of silly, <laughs> put together a kind of silly pie chart in one of my articles just to really highlight how minuscule the, the amount of money coming from the police officers and the firefighters is in comparison to the Chevron money. Because mm-hmm. it is, you know, that's, that sounds nice. It's a coalition of you know, people that protect you and Chevron. Like that sounds, you know, that sounds really nice. But when you look at it, the the numbers don't really back that up. It seems like it's very, very heavily weighted towards Chevron. Right. 
you know, I'd like to give you a chance to talk about your publication. Um, I know you're not the only one who's been covering this story from your publication. Talk to us a little bit about the Richmond Confidential and, and you know, what, what you guys are up to. Yeah, so Richmond Confidential, which you can find at richmondconfidential.org, is an online news service, um, and it's provided by the Graduate School of Journalism at UC Berkeley. So um, it's essentially a service learning project. Everyone in their first semester um, takes essentially one big class that takes up most of your time, and that is, you know, in J200 introduction to reporting or whatever, although mm-hmm. many of us have experience. And... Your job is to work as a reporter for the this hyperlocal website. Um, so there's we run two websites. One is out of Oakland as well. But about so there's about 20 of us who report exclusively for Richmond Confidential, almost on a full time ish basis. Mm-hmm. Um, it's what we spend most of our time doing. So I have and you do a great job. I mean, oh, I know even <laughs> some of the biggest. Uh, you know, reporters for mainstream media are following you guys on Facebook, I've noticed. And, uh, you yeah. know, as I mentioned, I picked up your articles in, you know, one of the local newspapers here. So you're doing a great job. In the 30 seconds we have left, any predictions? Yeah. Will Chevron win or will they not in the Richmond race? Unfortunately, I think Chevron's the only one that knows that because they're the only ones doing polling. So I have <laughs> no idea. <laughs> so we'll all have to wait and see. We'll wake up yeah. Wednesday morning next week and find out if this was successful. Well, thank you for joining us on Go Green Radio, Harriet, and good luck to you and your fellow students in what you're doing. I really enjoy your work. And thanks to our listeners for joining us again on Go Green Radio. We're going to be here same time, same place next week with more Go Green Radio. So until then, have a wonderful week and do something in your life to go green. Did you get some terrific ideas from today's show? Please join us for more next Friday at 9 a.m. Pacific Time, noon Eastern Time. It's Go Green Radio with Jill Buck here on Voice America. Go Green Radio is proudly sponsored by Covanta Energy, a leader in providing renewable energy solutions for a cleaner world. Visit www.covantaenergy.com for more information. We'll see you here next week.